just when you talk to teams and you change to expression, you see the entire way that the conversation is. People become much more, um, they think a lot more about the words that they're using. When I go insert and use expressions of concern, I see them changing from aggressive using the words aggressive, using the words violent to other things because they start to think about the words that they're using. Welcome to season two of Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious illness and health-related situations as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. Communicating with people living with advancing dementia and who require care can be challenging and frustrating for everyone, despite our best intentions. Dementia is a serious, progressive, life-limiting illness that has major consequences for the person diagnosed with dementia, their families, and family caregivers. At some point in the illness, people living with dementia may require residential care, and at any time they may require acute care for other reasons and be hospitalized. How do we best communicate in such circumstances? In this episode, Mary Buck, an expert in fostering more effective communication practice in dementia, shares important information that also may challenge some of our usual practices. Mary's a registered nurse and a psychogeriatric resource consultant for multiple sectors, including acute care, community, and long-term care. She started her nursing career at home and community care as an intensive care coordinator for a community ward team pilot and eventually moved into a management role at a large acute care center. During the acute care leadership experience, she managed the COVID-19 unit and the acute care for the elderly unit. Mary's a true advocate for persons living with dementia and their formal caregivers. She's certified in programs that enhance team collaboration and supportive care with older persons and their care partners. This includes programs such as PIECES, Gentle Persuasive Approach, and the You First Coach. She designs dementia curricula for fast-paced care environments. She's developed several novel interactive educational sessions, including trauma-informed dementia care, dementia-friendly transitions, and dementia-friendly language. Currently, she's an instructor at McMaster University and pursuing a PhD with an interest in furthering specialized dementia care during transition. So Mary, I'm so grateful that you have uh, agreed to talk today about an issue I think that is a big priority for lots of Canadians, although we may not know it, and that is uh, speaking with people who have dementia and or people who care for people with dementia and understanding how communication and language is so crucial as part of our approach to care. And so I'm really looking forward to mining your brain today about that. You've had lots of uh, experience and, uh, and expertise in this. So first of all, can you just Give us a little background as to what your role is in terms of communication and 
dementia. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to take this time. And it's been a it's been great for me to just start thinking through um, some of the things that I do every day and putting that into words <laughs> and communication. But my role is really unique to the healthcare system um, and the healthcare settings because it's a provincially funded role with Behavior Supports Ontario. Um, but I don't work in any one particular organization. So I actually consult for nine long-term care homes, two acute care, uh, large acute care centers, and then I'm also a resource in the community. And really my clientele ranges from um, other nurses, um, personal support workers, geriatricians, uh, nurse practitioners, basically anyone and everyone who may be involved with caring for persons um, diagnosed with a dementia. And so we always say that we're kind of in the trees um, of healthcare overlooking and um, that's where my my love and my passion for uh, transitions uh, with dementia care and what uh, my PhD is focused on came from because um, as I was kind of looking over into the forest of all of these different, this organism we call the healthcare system, I realized that persons with dementia were often getting missed and um, not advocated for and that transitions were very um, important and communication is a huge part of that. So my job really consists of three basic things. The first is education. So I provide formal and informal educations to um, formal healthcare providers. My second is really still education, but through consultation. So really looking at that one individual person, but always doing it um, under the education framing um, to build capacity in all these different sectors. And then the third part is really um, provincial work. So being involved in some of the big organizations and some of the big work that gets done um, in Ontario Health and other realms um, to advocate for persons with dementia on a different level. And within dementia, my main focus in my educations is really around what we now call expressions of concern. So when dementia patients, um, when people with dementia progress, and uh, sometimes out of that about 80%, um, will have um, what we used to call behaviors. Either they could be physical, verbal, um, sexual, how they might communicate their needs in ways that um, could be of danger to themselves or others or staff. Um, and so that's really my main focus when I'm doing these educations. So first of all, maybe we should uh, define dementia. <laughs> Yeah, so there's actually 25 different types of dementia, over 25 different types, but really there has to be a progressive, prolonged loss of um, cognition, usually memory, abstract thinking, there could be personality changes, um, and these are all due to organic changes in the brain. So it's not aging. There's a really, it's really important to define the difference. This is a disease progress and uh that progresses. So it could be Alzheimer's dementia, which is about 85 to 90% of all dementias, but it could be frontal lobe, um, which just affects the frontal lobe of the brain first, vascular, so post-stroke, um, that's another kind, or it could be mic a mixture of both of those, or it could be something like Parkinson's. So there's a whole bunch of different dementias that fall under that tree. So it's interesting because I'm thinking uh, people might not associate uh, cognitive decline with things like 
Parkinson's. Correct. Yeah. And Huntington's disease, we see a lot. Um, And then there's also a growing population of those who have suffered from chronic mental health and have been on a lot of medications that could also cause different dementias and alcohol-related dementias. So we're starting to learn a little bit more about how pharmaceuticals and addiction can um, cause different types of dementia as well. Okay. Am I correct in thinking that the approach that we're talking about today, and that is how we relate to people, uh, communication would be adapted to their needs. Does it matter what the nature of their dementia is? Yeah, that's a great question because it does. Um, okay. Almost the the first question I ask if I'm consulting on a specific person is what type of dementia is it? And almost 100% of the time it's unspecified. Um, and so the problem is, especially with the older adult, there's a lot of stigma around dementia as being a normal part of aging. And so they often don't get the proper imaging done and the proper testing done to really understand what type, what is the underlying um, pathophysiology that needs to be, um, because that really affects how we care plan. It really, really does. So someone with the Alzheimer's dementia that has very little short-term memory um, is a much different care approach than a frontal lobe who has all of their short-term memory, right? So you can imagine uh, the interventions are much different because they're going to remember who you are. They have all that carryover. Um, they're usually young. They're very physically inept um, compared to somebody with an Alzheimer's dementia who, uh, you know, every few minutes is new. So those are very two different strategies on how to um, deliver care. It's fascinating, really. And uh, I'm wondering how many of us in the system really understand that. Yeah. And it's important because they're predicting um, by 2030 that 1 million people in Canada will be living with dementia. So, and I think it's around 1.7 by 2050. And that costs our healthcare system, I mean, billions of dollars. Um, And in Ontario alone, there'll be an increase of 202% of dementia um, diagnoses by 2050. So we are on the route, mostly because of our growing um, aging population as well. But we are, uh, this is something that we need to take um, very seriously in our system, because it's going to completely overwhelm us if we don't understand it and understand how to um, communicate and properly um, be able to navigate the system for persons with dementia. You've mentioned the cost to the healthcare system. And then, of course, there is the huge cost in all sorts of aspects, not just financial, to people themselves and their caregivers who are not in the healthcare system, but their loved ones who who provide care. So the costs are huge. My approach would be that uh, I guess the assumption is that how we talk to people and about them and uh, help them is essential to the care of many people in the future. And uh, it also may affect the quality of work. How uh, How does communication with people with dementia affect nurses and other healthcare providers who are actually engaging in conversation, assessments, care? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a few levels of communication that I that I focus on. 
Um, one is definitely that communication between the nurse or um, formal caregiver um, and the person with dementia, which depending on their abilities and their um, deficits and their changing the nature of how it changes day to day, um, we do a lot of um, a lot of training on that, especially when it comes to nonverbal communication, understanding cues and what that might look like really through that person-centered lens, right? Um, this isn't a quick thing fits all, you know, you do one thing for one uh, person with dementia and then it's gonna work for everyone. So um, it takes a lot of critical thinking, a lot of thought, a lot of planning, a lot of consistency. And those are all very hard to do in the context of a very busy healthcare system that mm-hmm. uh, with very time limited. So, um, I always try to, because I, you know, I don't necessarily work day to day with persons with dementia. I really work with the staff, but I try to always keep that in my mind um, because they're they're doing really hard work in an environment that's really not conducive to kind of what we're teaching. So um, there are definitely barriers there, but there's the communication um, definitely with the person that has dementia. But what I'm finding the most fascinating and the most effect on the actual person with dementia is our communication with each other. Um, and that doesn't often get talked about, but I've I've just seen it over and over again. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. As you probably know, persons who have dementia have a really high likelihood of developing a delirium. And this is, uh, you know, it's, it's quick, it happens fast, it's short-lived, it's a medical emergency, it definitely has to be treated. Can you define delirium? How is that different? Yes, yes. yes. So it is a medical emergency. Um, it comes on quickly and it lasts for just a time period and then usually resolves. However, if it's not treated in time, it can cause death. Um, and it usually is expressed either a hyperactive or a hypoactive. So either the person is expressing a lot of uh, personal expressions that may be physical, they may be verbal, they may be uh, delusions, hallucinations, um, and then or it could be hypoactive where they almost go into a comatose state. But the important part of that is when they show up in the emergency room, for example, and they're having these expressions. Um, They may be hitting, kicking, screaming, yelling, uh, seeing things that aren't there, hallucinations. Uh, Oftentimes the nurse uh, will document in the chart that they are violent. Um, And as you know, in that system, once they're documented as violent, they get this violent assessment tool kind of comes up and every nurse that looks after that person with dementia sees that. Um, And so we use the words like violent. Um, Now, in the context of dementia, usually a delirium resolves with correct treatment. So it's either they have an infection or they have some other medical things going on. Um, And so usually once it's resolved, it clears and that behavior is no longer present. Um, What I've seen happen over and over again is they come in with a delirium. The nurse is charting things like violent, aggressive. Uh, and then that gets carried onto the floor when they get admitted to hospital. And then that nurse reads that and that gets carried over. Sometimes that includes they'll use chemical restraints, perhaps physical restraints. Um, they're much more likely to use those if the patient has been described as violent or aggressive. Um, and then that carries on then to their actual destination. So what I've seen is that um 
they'll perhaps not be able to go home after because especially prolonged delirium can really decrease mobility and function. And so we'll do a long-term care application from hospital and the long-term care will turn them down because of this label. So this was a time period with a very specific medical condition, but the behavior uh, or the expressions had been carried out and documented in such a way that now long-term care is afraid of getting them. Um, so it does really affect, and then they live in the hospital for a really long time. Um, and that is a really negative impact that just a label has given, just a language that hasn't been properly communicated actually causes um, a person with dementia to not get the care in the right place that they need it. Wow, that's powerful. I'm wondering if you have suggestions then about how we could shift that language that would be something appropriate, but not stigmatizing. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work on this because that's the exact next question I get asked. Well, how am I supposed to document this? Unfortunately, some of our systems actually have built in the words, like it's a drop-down menu, like aggressive, agitated, um, whatever it might be. Um, uncooperative is another one that you get a lot. Resistant is another one you get a lot of. And so I always say, if you have to choose what in the drop-down, do it, but make sure there's a note there. Make sure that you're including three things. What happened before the expression? So it's in the context of a delirium, great thing for everybody to know, or it's in the context of personal care only. So only when you're in their personal space, that might happen. What the actual behavior was. So not using words like aggressive, violent, agitated, because those words mean different things to so many different people. So violent to me could be a choke. And violent to you could be a protective behavior or a block where they just say are saying enough, don't touch me anymore. We might document that the same. But once you read the word violent, we know that your body language is going to change when you walk into that room. The way you approach them is going to change. The language you use with them is going to change. And you're much more likely, again, to use physical and chemical restraints or approach with more than one person, which can be quite intimidating. So those words that we use are really important because they have no context to them. They're not helpful. And the other example I would use is I used to hear a lot, oh, are we talking about the screamer in room three, right? Or, or whatever it might be, the exit seeker in room four. So and this is that, a label. This is a label. Yeah, that we're labeling get. the behavior um, or so we're a screamer. labeling. Okay, a screamer. Yeah. An it could exit. be an exit seeker. It could be uh, the violent one in room seven. Um, it could be any of those things. And what that does to staff, how I try to explain it is it makes the behavior the person. And so they've taken that on as who they are. And once we do that, we do very little work to change it. So once we have all established that they're the screamer in room three, who's going to do the work to understand what the need is. Because what we do know is every behavior is an unmet need. So we no longer try to investigate and understand the need that's not being met in that situation with that person. And we just label them like we can't do anything about it and we can't change ourselves, our approach, our environment um, in order to help them not have to express that behavior. So it's really changing that conversation. Yeah, so that's culture changing. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Within the profession and within healthcare teams and within 
healthcare organizations. Yes. And it, it goes all the way up to um, director, CEO levels. It's, uh, I always say, um, my quote is, it's not the nurse's responsibility to um, change ages um, state and stigma around the aging population. It's really our entire organization. So we can do what we want as a person, but we have systems built around ageism, right? We have entire organizations built around ageism. So it's really important that we do what we can, but that, you know, we also look to the the greater levels of politics and, and healthcare. I mean, there's never been a more popular time for anti-aging cream, right? And gray <laughs> hair cover-up. So we we are we live in a day and age where youth and youthfulness is what is desired. And so we already have a societal stigma against the aging population. And you add in some of these expressions that can occur um, and you have the perfect storm for um, for caregivers who really struggle. Um, in fact, safety uh, related to um, behaviors is uh, I think it was used that did a study 2010 was the number one reason that nurses got out of geriatric nursing. Um, and so it is a huge problem um, and that's not going to go away. And so giving nurses the tools um, to change that culture and the tools to understand how that influences their care, um, I think has been is really important. So along with that, Mary, uh, a few uh, minutes ago, you said we used to call them behaviors. Can you ex- go back and explain what you were thinking at that time? Yeah, so there's kind of been an evolution of language and dementia. And it's been interesting because the research is still not there. There's studies that are currently being um, released that use the words, you know, aggressive, um, violent behaviors, uh, things like that. And then we kind of went from labeling it as aggressive and violent to we called it um, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with the word behaviors, it's not that it's wrong. It's that there's some better words to use because it makes it again, seem like they're a child having a behavior, a temper tantrum almost. Um, and so people can start to, in their mind, um, and I think it's subconsciously, but maybe treat them a bit like a toddler or a child, um, kind of infantilize them a little bit. Um, honey, dear, um, is having a behavior. Um, when we change it to an expression, So now I always use expression, sometimes I'll add expression of concern so that people know it's not just an, you know, an expression that is an expression of concern. There is um, definitely um, risk involved with these expressions. It's not that there isn't, there definitely is. Using expressions of concern, it's a little bit awkward when you first start using it, but I think it shows people that they're just expressing a need and the way that they're expressing that is of concern. Maybe it is verbal, maybe it is physical, Um, but to describe what the actual behavior uh, or expression is, instead of labeling it, um, we don't even use um, exit seeking anymore. We say seeking exit, right? Because it's almost flipped into an ability. They're seeking exit. They have the wherewithal to know where that exit is. Like that's a great ability that they still have in their dementia journey. 
So instead of making everything negative, really spinning it to say um, what's positive. We do this a lot within um, sexual behaviors or expressions as well. It's weird to say sexual behavior, but when you say a sexual expression, it becomes um, an ability that they still have to have be loved and have intimacy. I mean, it's an innate human need. And so when we make it into a negative behavior, instead of, wow, this person still has the ability to express um, one of the first desires we have as human beings that makes us who we are, um, let's praise that and let's talk about um, how we can make it safe. So there's um, a bit of changing of how we kind of communicate. Um, and I think by using expressions, it does take a lot of the negative um, childlike behaviors away from it. So interesting and a powerful testament to how language affects how we are with people in ways that we never think about, really. I'm thinking about uh, the term then behaviors that I think is embedded right now, at least in the context of my own uh, workplace and uh, uh, environment, in books, in textbooks, in um, referral mechanisms, et cetera. It's about behavior. So any comments there? <laughs> uh, we have a lot of work to do, I guess. Yeah. We still have behavioral transitions units. We still have, I mean, I recently talked to somebody doing research in this and they said, you know, the issue is in another five years, there'll be another term, right? And we'll just keep continuing to change the terms. And so there's kind of that thought out there, I think maybe within the research world, but um, to me, it's what what is less the least harmful way to um, communicate and the most true to the person? And what we know from dementia and some of the expressions that they have, what we know about the psychology of it now is that they're communicating a need. And so I think an expression fits that um, a lot better and is a lot less alarming. And it also allows room, I think, um, when something's an expression, to not feel maybe a control over it the same way as a behavior because we do a lot of behavior monitoring a lot of behavior um, we have a lot of behavior tools that we use a lot of ways we try to quantify it but when it's their expression it kind of i think leaves it more open to their personhood and who they are instead of labeling it as a verbal behavior a physical behavior it's an expression really is how they're expressing themselves and their needs. And it's very, I think I'm more, has a more personal feel to them and very person centered. And it helps us remember that it is about that person um, and not about, you know, ticking a box or trying to understand maybe patterns, but what's actually happening for them in that moment. All those things are useful. I, we do use a lot of behavior tracking tools um, still in, in my line of work, for sure, in psychogeriatric uh, work. But I will say that um, just when you talk to teams and you change to expression, you see the entire way that the conversation is. People become much more, um, they think a lot more about the words that they're using. When I go and start and use expressions of concern, I see them changing from aggressive, using the words aggressive, using the words violent to other things because they start to think about the words that they're using. So I try to model that. I try to teach it in my education sessions why we might use that language, but it takes practice. Yes, and uh, it is 
a system too. So, but one person can start to make a difference if you start to change how you talk about. Well, um, it, I guess we don't we don't know. Do we know the science around this? Have we got research that supports you know those different approaches or the the different use of language and its effect on culture in a unit and care? There's not a lot out there right now, unfortunately, in the research world. There's a lot of gray literature, actually. I'll, I'll make sure to give you the links, but anything by Behavior Supports Ontario, they have entire um, bodies of literature, mostly gray literature that's been done um, throughout the world on things like language. Um, and the Alzheimer's Society as well has a lot of really great resources on dementia-friendly language. I haven't done a full comprehensive search yet of yeah. the literature, so yeah. I, I, I'll i give that as a precursor. Most of my research has been really around that transitional care piece. But to my knowledge, I'm still seeing things published all the time that are not using um, dementia-friendly language. Right. So it is something that research is behind in. It's really a paradigm shift in thinking about the issues uh, when you're talking about person-based. And it sounds to me like a capacity or strength-based approach that you're looking at what people have and the expressions of their needs versus behaviors which sometimes we think are directed at us. <laughs> it's very complex, uh, but I think that's what you're saying is a strength-based approach to see that this person has abilities to find connection or go or get something. People really kind of gasp when I say, well, what are their abilities? And they're like, what? Like, what does that have to do with this expression? I had, for example, I had uh, a consult. Um, she was having a lot of verbal behaviors um, over and over again, really repetitive. They kept saying, like, what are we going to do about this behavior? You know, what are we going to do about this behavior? And I said, well, what did she do when she, um, oh, she was an author. I was like, oh, but she can't communicate anymore. I said, oh, so she's lost her language. And she, they said, yes. So it's kind of a word salad. She talks, but it doesn't really make sense. And I said, well, I bet that's really frustrating. I bet that's where a lot of this verbal hyperverbalization is coming from. And I said, um, but can she read? And everybody just looked at me and I said, can she read? And they said, well, she can't speak and she can't understand what we're saying. Of course she can't read. And I said, but that's not true. Those are different parts of the brain. Um, let's let's get her some large font books. And we ended up doing that. And this lady ended up being able to read actually quite well. And it completely changed her world because she had meaning again. Because um, as an author, that was something that was so important to her and her life's work and something she missed so much. And she had so many deficits, right, with her dementia. But because she had this strength and we were able to finally identify it that nobody thought was even going to, um, they didn't even think about it. She actually, we started, she started a book club. Um, and so it was through a lot of um, visual work and through support through their um, BSO, their behavior supports team. But she was thriving because she was reading again. And it wasn't that they were trying to, um, I mean, obviously they didn't want her to have these very loud verbal expressions because that was causing um, other expressions for other people, right? It's, it's not just that person. It affects everybody that they're living with. But once we were able to identify her ability, 
um, she flourished and that behave that that those expressions completely went away. So really important to understand the abilities that are left and talk about them in that way because it opens staff, uh, the eyes of the staff get open to other possibilities or other interventions that they haven't thought of before. So that must be very uh, exhilarating for staff to have that revealed because it's a it's a new way that they can connect with people and change the environment of their workplace and and where that person lives in in long-term mm-hmm. care I guess and it makes them feel safe right yes. like um I yes. always say this it takes a little bit more time to do these things sometimes at the beginning um and that's kind of the number one reason people will say they don't want to go through some of these um processes But at the end of the day, the time, you know, that that person gets back and enjoying something, I mean, that's that's really worth so much um, to the staff and the person with dementia. And it makes the staff feel successful as well. Yes. So you mentioned dementia friendly language. Can you talk about that a little bit? You've given us some terms, but what is it exactly that you mean when you're referring to that? So it is a little bit different when I talk about the care setting. Um, And I think um, we've been through some of those examples, like, you know, not labeling behavior, um, using expressions instead of behavior, um, things like that. Um, Being really careful about um, those handovers um, when you're using words like aggressive and violent. But there's also another level of it that I think is really important. And that's really kind of more at an organizational and political level. There's all kinds of language um, that would be considered not dementia friendly um, within our society. I I mean, we talked a little bit about the anti-aging cream, but, um, you know, if someone tells you you, you're looking so young or, you know, misages you, those can be all examples of how we as a society don't portray uh, dementia-friendly language, um, especially related to uh, memory. Um, You know, I'm old, so my memory is going, um, can be quite a harmful environment to to create um, when there's people with the actual disease process of dementia that have significant memory um, deficits, and that is their life every day. Yeah, I just think that there's there's a lot of levels of how dementia-friendly language can can be integrated within our care, but also on higher and societal levels. Um, and that all goes along with ageism. Um, but we really strongly associate ageism and memory together. Um, and that can that can cause a lot of um, you know, our future generations to have the same kind of thought processes and value the older population in different ways. Um when we're, you know, some of the only first world countries that actually put our older adults into long-term care homes and have that type of care setting. So um, it is very cultural to have that ageism in our culture. So you are making some links with aging and dementia. And I guess the idea is that age is a risk factor for dementia. Is that right? It's it's a risk factor for dementia. Um in fact, uh, it's about 10% of people over the age of 65 have dementia. Um, 
So as your age goes up, your likelihood of getting dementia goes up, especially certain types such as Alzheimer's dementia. I mean, you have your early onset ones, obviously, and you have your ones related to stroke that can happen earlier. Um, but for the most part, it is um, it usually happens later in life. So that's why it's so strongly linked to age. But as our aging population grows, so will our um, dementia population as well. And so the other thing I'm hearing you say is that we should be very thoughtful about using jokes or alluding to our own slips in memory as dementia related. That's is that right when you're talking? Yeah, I think or uh, or relating it directly to age okay. um, because it is different than aging. And you have dementia, a higher likelihood, but it's different. Healthy aging is different than dementia. The other thing is that dementia has different stages as well. So any comments around adaptation to levels? Yeah, so you have your really um, early stages of dementia, which is your typical that you'll hear a lot about. I forgot my keys. I forgot where I parked my car, um, that type of thing. And so they really say that the diagnosis of dementia and cognitive impairment comes when you've lost, you know, two or more of your abilities. So you've lost either your ability to drive. Um, so ADLs or IADLs, so um, activities of daily living. So maybe you've lost your ability to drive and cook because you keep leaving the stove on or now you're unable to get dressed, um, things like that. And that's just uh, your ability to do those procedures um, in an order. Uh, so it kind of, as you start to lose more and more of those activities of daily living, they would consider you to have a higher uh, a less mild form of dementia, and then it kind of goes up to the end stage dementia, which is palliative. And, um, you know, it is a palliative disease. And I think that's another part of the language and the communication that we that we use, um, because um, sometimes that's not how we treat the population when they have dementia, that they can somehow not be palliative or treated as a palliative patient or end of life patient. So uh, that's a whole other conversation for another yeah, time. Right. But but a good reminder that dementia is a chronic progressive life-limiting illness. And so a palliative approach to care is required. And that doesn't mean a person is dying imminently at all, right? One thing that you had uh, mentioned was your expertise in trauma-informed dementia care. Can you speak to, we know we've talked a little bit in this podcast around trauma uh, informed communication. How does that figure in relation to dementia? It uses a lot of the same basic principles, um, but they have to be adapted to dementia. And I'll give you an example. Um, most people uh, with the most common kind, Alzheimer's dementia, will start to relive their life chronologically. So they may think that they are now 40 years old. Uh, and so that's a lot of times why we actually cover the mirror in long-term care homes, or there's no mirrors you'll see in long-term care homes, because they'll actually, it can be very distressing for them when they look in the mirror and they think somebody's talking at them, but it's themselves because they don't recognize them as being that age, themselves as being that age. Uh, or you can see sometimes it's very comforting and they'll think it's their brother or their nephew or their, you know, so they'll have a great conversation. Um, so it can go either way, but um, 
people usually chronologically in their memories start to go down. And as that happens, they actually start to um, relive those experiences. And in the context of trauma, um, you know, I think in this population of kind of the baby boomer generation, there wasn't a lot of talk about trauma. And so we'll often not understand or know what a trauma trauma has happened or if a trauma happened. And so you'll start to see some expressions that you think, this is an interesting expression. Um, and so before we kind of go down that road and say, okay, has there been any trauma here? What I teach is that every we assume that everybody's had trauma and we provide a care that is reflective of that. Um, this oftentimes is in the context of personal care that happens a lot because the personal care has to get done to keep the person obviously from skin breakdown and all, all the things that um, personal care is needed for. However, um, there can be a lot of traumas, right? We know that there is a high incident of sexual assault, especially in that generation. Um, and so I actually had, um, there was a lady, they said they, it took them five people to do her personal care, five people to hold her down and do her personal care. And so I said, let me just observe what's happening. And I, and I rarely do this um, in my role, but I went in and I watched. And I watched the conversation that was happening and I watched the approach that was being used. And I started to, this is when I started to think a lot about trauma-informed specific dementia care, because you have somebody that is unable to, uh, the part in their brain that intakes that stimulus and understands what's happening, right? So it could be a scary event, no matter who you are. But in dementia, now I can't even reason through that. So I can't say, this is a really scary thing that's happening to me, but I know it's for my own good because I have to get this done in order to be healthy. So a person who's had trauma with a healthy brain can think through that usually, and they may have some expressions, but they're usually able to understand and justify why that's happening happening and compartmentalize it. In dementia, they don't have that ability. So they're getting touched in a certain way. They're hearing certain things being said. They're being approached in a certain way. Um, and they're reliving that time, right? And they can be right in the middle of that trauma and it is happening all over again to them. And so that is their response, fight or flight. I've often seen it done. So with this lady, she was fighting. She was going to fight off her attackers. Um, but what I heard the staff saying were words like, this will only take a minute. If you hold still, this will be over sooner. Um, coming in with multiple people, um, not being discreet and maintaining privacy um, because the person you think, okay, we know this person has these expressions. We got to get it done. And then it becomes this like quick, fast thing that is very barbaric actually to watch. Um, and the staff think that they're just doing the best thing they know how to do. We have to get the care done. This is how we have to do it to keep everyone safe. But I really had them reflect on what was being said, the words they were using. And this can be for anyone because you might have the woman who or the man that's experienced this that freezes and you think, oh, they're so easy to do personal care for, but they're actually living that trauma over again. They've just broke completely frozen. And so to understand that body language, to understand the communication they're giving you, and then to reflect on your own actions, your own words that you're using, how you're providing that care um, is so important. Um, so one strategy, for example, with um, trauma from dementia care 
is that because they don't have the ability to recall, uh, you know, one of the main factors with um, trauma-informed care is that you would build that relationship. Um, but if they forget who you are every 15 minutes, it's really hard to build that relationship. So therefore, building in procedural memory, which is one of the last memories to go, so that they know that I'm being touched in the same way, the exact same um, sequence, the exact same body parts at that exact same time, they will start to gain a memory for the procedure and say, okay, this isn't of harm to me. Um, and using ways like... Um, Cocooning is a great um, technique that is very good for um, dementia, people with dementia who have past trauma, the personal care, so making them feel warm and secure, and you kind of bundle them up in the, in the blanket, um, and then you're only uncovering one body part at a time. So using different techniques that make it as least like an abuse situation as possible. Um, you want to do everything opposite of that um, so that you're setting up an entire environment, the words that you're using, the language you're using, the body language that you have is very different from what they may have experienced in a traumatic situation. That's just an example um, for personal care, but one of the the most consistent ones I get. Mm -hmm. That's a great example because these things are happening every day in acute and long-term care uh, situations. And perhaps even in home settings. Uh, I'm thinking about the paradox <laughs> that exists where we have, it seems like the environment in which care is being provided now in many places is rushed or uh, maybe absent, but people there's not enough people to to do all the care that's required. And yet you're talking about an increasing population that need some more time and thought going into purposeful interaction. So it is important that uh, administrators, politicians, etc., understand that. Mm -hmm. And because, that's really led yeah. me to this post-COVID era of education which was kind of another thing that, you know, the communication is so limited now. Um, we are really unable to do these full comprehensive educations that staff used to have time for. Um, and there's a new normal that needs to um, begin. And I have done a lot of work to try and develop very creative, unique ways to deliver the maximum amount of um, interactive education in a very uh, limited time and communicate that in an effective way. Um, so that's been a lot of my work because we can't do what we used to do. You know, we're not in classrooms of PowerPoints and, <laughs> and all those things anymore. We're in five, 10 minute huddles um, with staff um, and trying to communicate all of these things, which is a complex, multi-layered, competency. And, and so uh, I never come into a huddle, even with, I usually have a, a topic kind of prepared, but if there's something happening in that moment, there's an expression that's happening. That's what we do. Um, because we know that people just want, they want to use what they're learning today. Yes. Um, and that communication has been very difficult um, when trying to really build people's capacity up for dementia care. I'm sure those innovative short 
delivery time solutions are welcomed. Uh, when people can see things applicable to their work, uh, they're usually welcomed. You've just unpacked or, or you've maybe taken the string off a big package that we could explore for so long. There's so many things that about what you've said that raise questions for me around how we talk with people and how we set up care and build relationships with people who have cognitive impairment. I'm wondering as we end this session, if you have any general approaches to talking with and interacting with people who have dementia. So we've talked about, you know, specific things, trauma-informed, dementia-friendly, and, and the use of terminology like behavior versus expression and how that shifts our thinking about them as a problematic child to a human being with needs. Are there any, any other highlights or takeaways that you would offer around speaking with us? We're going to just focus on the verbal communication, I guess, speaking with people or about people who have dementia. Yeah, I think one of the main takeaways would be these are not um, children and that they have lived an entire life. They have an entire life experience with wisdom and with the ability to contribute to society in a, in a big way. And though we don't necessarily value their wisdom in our society, there are societies that do and do this very well, but to know and to be interested in their knowledge and their expertise that they have, that they've built over an entire lifetime of experiences and to talk to them about that. They love to reflect in a time and to believe them where they are. So if they are reliving, um, you know, a time in their 40s that they're that you're with them there. Um, we used to do a lot of reality yes. orientation. It's I remember been a big that shift. very well. I yeah. know. I, rem- I remember that very it's well. It's still a big shift for staff yeah. today, especially yes. ones that have been doing it for 30, 40 years. Yes. Um, to say it's okay. It's okay that, that, you know, we're back at work and we have a clipboard and we're charting. I mean, nurses are some of the worst, uh, <laughs> most difficult uh, to handle persons with dementia um, because they're, they're often night tops. They often like to be up all night and uh, okay. giving them that job, that purpose. Um, I try to steer away from um, this notion to go to like, oh, we're going to get a whole bunch of towels and have them fold towels and then we're going to destroy it and have them fold it again but really meaningful work how are they contributing because one of the needs that's the most difficult um, that causes um, expressions that's the most difficult for staff um, and people to communicate for them to communicate is belonging and so how do we have people who are often um, in 24-hour care um, in a setting that's not their own that they haven't they're not really sure why they're there or or what to do. How do we show them that how to belong? How are we home to them? Um, and that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to make someone feel like they you belong here. You belong, you're in the right place. And so to show them belonging, to give them meaning and purposeful work, 
because they still want to contribute to wherever they're living and and to get to know them as a person. Um, I think almost every single um, expression that I've come across, almost all of them have been actually completely uh, solved by just knowing who they are as people um, and knowing what their what their past was like, who they are. And if you can tell your children, <laughs> I tell people, what, how you like your coffee, you know, what kind of junk food you like when you're having a bad day, you know, what that you don't like to be woken up early in the morning, all these little nuances, these things that we take for granted every day and how we've built our everyday life, having those communicated um, so that the people that care for you eventually, or if you um, are in care already, know those things about you and understand you in that way. Because I actually find it's those little things that people are trying to cling on to, those lifelong habits that are taken um, away. And if we can just even do that amount of work, uh, I think, to understand them as people and who they were and what what made them tick, what gave them purpose and fulfillment, I think um, that's how we really increase their quality of life. That's patient-centeredness at its core, isn't it? You've uh, raised ageism a lot uh, in our talk today. And I'm thinking about the number of times that you hear honey and sweetie and dear (laughs) as part of the language of care. Any, you know, should we continue to do that? No. No. All right. Um, and, And I guess why not? Because I think it, I would think that people who use those terms, it comes from a place of caring. So what are your thoughts about that? I think it does come from a place of care. There's very few people that get into these professions who don't actually want the best for the people they're caring for. But, um, you know, they're not your sweetie or your honey. They're not, right? They're, they're people who have lived full, complete lives and they deserve to be acknowledged um, or their name that they would like to be called. Um that makes them feel most comfortable. I mean, there's some people who's who love that, right? Who want to be called that. But for the most part, it is really treating them like a child and they're not children. They're not our sweetie. They're not our, they're, they're not any of those things. They are um, people with lived experience who have been called by a name their whole life. You know, they weren't called that in their forties. And if they're reliving their forties, they probably don't want to be called that in their forties. Um, so I always say it's best to use their name or what the family has said they're most like they've been called. Um, so if they have a nickname or something like that, that can usually be very comforting as well, um, because it makes them know that you actually know them. But yes, we try to steer away from any of those, um, those enduring terms um, as possible. If you kind of wouldn't use them with, you know, a 30-year-old woman or man, you probably shouldn't use them with, uh, you know, a 90-year-old just because they may have dementia or some deficits. Call them by their name. Wise counsel. Mary, it's been illuminating to say the least to hear about all of these ideas and approaches and observations around communicating with people who have cognitive impairment. And I'm so grateful personally uh, to you for helping me understand some, and, and I'm sure others will be, uh, be helped by that as well. Are there 
there are resources that that people could consult to, uh, that might carry on some of the ideas that you've shared today. We'll put those up into our onto our website, uh, radicalnursetalk.com. Did you want to mention any in particular? Uh, I think the three big ones are the brain exchange. Um, it's very helpful. has a lot of, uh, they keep all of their information up to date and it's all sorted by topic. So um, whether it be language or expressions, specific expressions, it's very updated on there. Um, the other one that you can get to from the brain exchange would be Behavior Supports Ontario that also has a lot of great information, especially if you're someone that works with the geriatric population. Um, it's free to use. Uh, I mean, the pod, there's webinars on there um, that are done by world-renowned speakers, It's and it's all up to date, so it's a really great resource. Um, and then, of course, the uh, Alzheimer's Society often has a lot of really good information, especially for caregivers um, who who might need some extra resources. Um, but all three of those are really powerful tools. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We're grateful to those of you who continue to follow and share this podcast on social media and help our audience grow. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at www.radicalnursetalk.com or by emailing us at radicalnursetalk at gmail.com. The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos-Foley. Social media by Amy Strachan.